Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey man, good morning, how are you? All right, let's open our Bibles if you have one to Ro- uh, Romans. I'm so used to saying it. Mark chapter 10. The joke is, if you're visiting with us, is we've been working through the New Testament letter of Romans, and we're taking a one-week break from that to consider a beautiful scene, and in particular, an incredible sentence in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10. So we'll pick back up in Romans 8 next week. Love to have you. Been working through that letter for about a year and a half almost now. And on this resurrection day, we, we want to consider the most important news in all of the universe. And and I want to ask you a question that I think is the most important question that we can consider on this morning. And that question is, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he come? And I think embedded in our our scene that we're going to read here in Mark chapter 10, in particular in verse 45, we're going to see a, a sentence that I think answers this very directly for us. And I want us to think about about why Jesus came and what he has done. So let me read from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And and in particular, we're going to dwell on verse 45. Let me just say, um, it's just a joy to have you. If you, if you're visiting with us today and you don't have a church home, we'd love for you to to come back and 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 get a feel for us. Um, if this church isn't right for you, then we'd love to, you know, help you find another Bible-believing church in the ta- in this city. Uh, but we just hope you feel welcome. Um, and just one thing to, to those of us that are regulars or even visitors, maybe we have children in children's ministry. Uh, praise God for our children's ministry folks and servants that are working on Easter Sunday. Hey, when you, when you pick them up today, give them a little, like, extra little hug or, like, just a knowing, just look in your eyes like, yeah, sis, yeah, brother, thank you. <laughs> We're parachuting down into the middle of the Gospel of Mark. Lots has happened. But let's just, let's just let this scene stand on its own for our purposes this morning. We're approaching the Holy Week where Jesus is, is beginning to tell his disciples that he is going to die. Many miracles have already taken place in Jesus' ministry. At this point, he's already fed the multitudes. He's walked on water. He's raised people from the dead. And he's beginning to approach the Passover week where he will be, he will be crucified and betrayed and he will rise again. And in verse 35, we see this scene with Jesus and his disciples. Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now that, let's just take that in. That's, that's significant, right? I mean, can you imagine... Um, you know, I spent a little bit of time in the army, and I, I, I had a pretty intimidating brigade commander who was a colonel. And the gap between me and him was much smaller than the gap between Jesus and his disciples as far as glory. But I cannot imagine banging on the colonel's door and saying, hey, <laughs> I want you to do whatever you want me to do for you. That, that would not have gone well. But look at the grace of Jesus. Verse 36. 
And he said to them, <laughs> you can almost sort of see the playful sarcasm, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, very soberly, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? We'll look at that a little bit later, what Jesus means by that. And they said to him, verse 39, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began, speaking of the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then verse 45, and this is, this is the verse I want us to, to stare at in particular this morning. Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me read that again, and know that when Jesus says the phrase, Son of Man, he's referring to himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, but I want us to consider this question. What does it mean that Jesus gave his life as a ransom? What does that mean? That's one of the most important sentences that has ever been written. And we would do well to consider it this, this morning, in particular on this resurrection morning. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for my friends that are here. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather and we can wear bright colors and we can have food even now in the crock pot and thank you for grandma's house and thank you for new dresses and thank you for spring colors and thank you for blooming flowers and all these things. But Lord, this morning we thank you in particular for the good news of the gospel, for the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We thank you that in your kindness you have made a way back to yourself through Jesus. And you have made him, as he has said about himself here, a ransom for many. So Lord, would you help us to understand what this means? There, this room is full of two types of people. There are those that, that know this, that believe this, that are putting their hope in this, that have been made new by this, this glorious news. They're, they're your children. They're born again. I pray that for, for my brothers and sisters that are in that category, that this would not just be the mundane thing that they know to be true, but that it would freshly amaze us as we see the glory of the gospel in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And for my friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, their, their hope is not in what you have done to make a way back to yourself. They are not reconciled to you. 
Lord, I pray by your grace, by your goodness, by your mercy that you would open up their eyes, that you would humble their hearts, that you would, you would give them the gift of faith this morning so that they can trust in Jesus and be made new. I pray, Lord, that you do all these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of all those that you are calling to yourself even now. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean that Jesus gave his life as a ransom? Well, the first thing that I think embedded in that, that statement by Jesus is that there is a, there's a problem that needs to be solved. There's a ransom that needs to be paid. That means that there, there is a problem. There's an offense. There's something that broke down. There's a problem that needs to be solved. And that, that gets at the question, what is, what is man's greatest need? What do we need most? Now, these disciples came to Jesus, James and John, with lots of hubris. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the uh, just the the boldness to come to Jesus. And probably what's on their mind at this time is that they were Jewish people. They were raised in Israel. They were ethnically Jews. And they had been under Roman captivity their entire life. And before they were born, before Roman captivity, God's people, the Old Testament Jews, were under captivity to the Persians. And before the Persians, they were under captivity to the Babylonians. And so so James and John come from God's people, they're ethnic Jews who had been under the captivity of foreign invaders for generations and generations and generations. And in their Old Testament scriptures, there are all of these prophecies about how there will be this one, this king, this savior that will come and set his people free. And they were, I think, wrongly interpreting these scriptures to mean solely that Jesus would be a kind of political freer of his people from captivity. They were minimizing what Jesus had come to do as a mere pragmatic, a kind of temporary, an earthly, an earthly freedom from their political captivity. And so they were coming to Jesus, and basically they were, you know, they were saying, well, Jesus is about to be elected king of the world here. You know, he's the, he's the savior, not thinking so much in a universal spiritual sense, but in a kind of political sense. And basically, I think that they're kind of jockeying for a position in the cabinet. Jesus, well, I'd kind of like to be your secretary of state, and, you know, maybe, maybe my brother John can be your, you know, minister of defense. That's basically the heart of what they're coming to Jesus for. And we may think, oh, well, we, you know, we, we understand better than that. We, we know that Jesus has come to do far greater, far more eternal things. But friends, aren't, aren't we the same way? Don't we instinctively come to Jesus just kind of wanting him to be a mere solver of our temporary problems? a mere pragmatic help in this life now. But friends, when we see what the Bible has to say about the predicament of man, we realize that our need is actually much greater than a better job or a better situation or even healing from some temporary disease or some political freedom. Our need is that we are fallen. There's something that is not outside of us that's holding us back, but there's something inside of us that has dragged us down. And the Bible is very 
very clear about what this is. Listen to what Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and he's writing to another church here in the Roman Empire at the time, Ephesus, and he says that there is this nature that exists in all of us as people. And he says this in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So in other words, you know, you're, he's speaking to people that were alive at the time, clearly, but he's saying in a spiritual sense, you're dead, you're incapable. There's nothing that you can do to sort of make the situation right. So that's what he means by that. You're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, he's saying there's a demonic force in other parts of the Bible, calls it Satan, our enemy, that is really in control of this world in a sense. Not outside of God's control, but, but, but sin as it entered into all of humanity has, has, has separated humanity from God. And he says, it's not, just, it's not just these Ephesians who were like this, but in verse 3, he talks about all of us. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we are by nature, he says, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, now that may seem like a really severe thing to read on Easter morning, but you can't really understand the resurrection and the good news of the gospel unless you understand the very bad news that precedes it. And that's, that's, that's the situation. That's why Jesus had to be a ransom, because there's a problem to be solved. There, there, is, there is an offense. There's a, another word that the Bible uses for sin is transgression. In other words, there's something that's happened where something has been destroyed. And that which has been destroyed is our relationship with, with God. In fact, this idea of ransom, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. And maybe you're not very familiar with the Old Testament and you wonder kind of all these strange laws and stories in the Old Testament. And in particular, there's books like Exodus and Leviticus that are full of laws. And many of those laws have to do with this idea of restitution. If, if you accidentally kill one of my oxes or cows or goats, then you have to pay a ransom. You have to, there's a transgression, there's an offense. I've lost something and now I have to be compensated. And oftentimes this idea of ransom, in fact this very word, ransom would be used in the Old Testament. Laws that God said this needs to be repaid because something has been transgressed, something has been broken. And all of this ultimately as we see now in light of the New Testament is pointing forward to what Jesus will do. But the point is this friend, is just know this at this point that Jesus came as a ransom and embedded in that as, as a sort of presupposition to that is this idea that there's an offense, there's a, a sin, a problem that needs to be solved. And that problem rests, it rests in all of us. Here, here's my point. Who among us can stand before God with our chest out and our shoulders back saying, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. I think I deserve to kind of be in relationship with you. Who among us can say that? Listen to what the psalmist says. He says in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But here's why we don't feel the force of that 
in our culture today because we tend to judge ourselves not by how we are before a holy God vertically, but by how we compare to other people horizontally. And don't we always pick out the worst possible examples to compare ourselves to, right? Well, I'm not like that guy, so I must be okay, right? But friends, that's not how the Bible, that's not how the Bible, that's not how this book equates what it means to be right with God. Because this thing, just, let's just run that philosophy through, this idea how, you know, if we're basically decent compared to other people, we'll be okay. Let's take that worldview and let's, let's apply it to all of life. Well, if that's the case, when is bad, bad enough to really separate you from God? Where's that line, <laughs> you know? Or maybe think of even conversely. When is, when is your goodness good enough to actually make you okay with your creator? And here's the convenient thing that we all do by nature. If there is a kind of subconscious line we draw, it's always just on the other side of where we are, right? But isn't that kind of arbitrary? I mean, what, think, of, think of how shifting those sands are. When is bad bad enough to really make you at odds with your holy creator God, and when is good good enough to make you right with your creator God? The answer that the Bible gives, friends, is that none of us are righteous, no, not one. There's nobody that can stand before God and say, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. We tend to think of the terrorist or the felon or the wicked criminal. And we tend to think, oh, they deserve God's judgment. But friends, even the moral, self-righteous church kid who's trusting in their own righteousness is guilty before a holy God. And you say, how can that be? Aren't they a good person? Friends, apart from the source of all goodness, which is God, there is nothing good. Think of it this way. Think of a young man who is raised, he's adopted by parents, He's adopted, but he was, he, was, he was adopted out of a squalor of an orphanage, and his parents adopted him as an infant, and they raised him, and they gave him every source of good and education, and he got a good college education, and he graduated from college, and he went to get a great job, and he has this great job, and with all of this money that he's making, he's doing all of these good things for people. He's, he's giving money to charities, and he's, he's starting you know, schools in, 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 in neighborhoods where, where children need good education, but he never, in fact, when he left home, he never acknowledges his parents. His mom calls him, he sees her number on the caller ID, and he hits deny. You would not say he was good. You would say there's something wrong with that cat because he won't even talk to his mom. He's not good, he's actually selfish. And in the same way, anybody that says they're good when they detach their goodness from the source of all their goodness isn't good. They are really a self-absorbed, self-glorifying person. So even human goodness at its best in an earthly sense, when it's detached from the fountain of all goodness, isn't goodness, it's idolatry. It's, it's making us the center of the universe rather than God. So do you see, friends, Do you see how even our self-righteousness, our moralism, our good deeds can be a kind of 
act of treason. And it puts us at odds. And Paul says in the verse we read in Ephesians, it makes us separated from God. And so how then will we be made right with God? How, how, how can we be made right with him? How can this problem be solved? Which, which then I think leads us to the, to the second truth is that there is, there is a, a price that needs to be paid. Something has to happen to repair this breach between us and a holy God. Who can make this right? It's not us. Who, who can pay this ransom? Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So there's no amount of human goodness that can make us atone for what we have done. And, and by the way, did you see what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2? He says that we're dead, we're spiritually, I think what he means by that is that we are spiritually unable. There's nothing in us that we can do because remember, when is our human goodness good enough to finally merit and satisfy God's justice? And the answer is, and this may feel very hopeless to you at this point, and I hope it does, it should, is that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. But here's where the gospel comes in. Here's the good news. Jesus says that you don't have to pay a ransom, but that he came to give his life as a ransom for, for many. So Jesus, this is the message of the resurrection. This is at the very heart of the gospel. This is at the very heart of the message of the Bible is that we have sinned and cut ourselves off from God, all of us, but Jesus has taken the place. He puts himself in our place to bear the punishment that we deserve. That's what it means to, to pay a ransom when Jesus is saying that I, my life is a ransom for you. So think about this for a second. Who is this Jesus who is saying this? He's not just a good man, but he is the eternal second person of the triune God. He's, he's God in the flesh. And Jesus comes and he substitutes himself for us. Listen to how the writer of the book of Hebrews describes what Jesus has done. This is a kind of progression of, of his work. So Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 10, let me read this for you. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, so speaking, I think, of God the Father, it's for him and by him all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, in other words, redeeming people, ransoming people from their lost condition, it's fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So see, see what's going on here in verse 10. is, is God the Father is is making the founder of salvation, Christ, he's, he's accomplishing that work of salvation through Jesus' life and suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. In other words, Jesus is, is really fulfilling the law of God in the Old Testament. An eye for an eye. It's now a man for a man. It's a, it's a real human for the sake of humans. Jesus became a man so that he could identify with us. Let's skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became like us 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, listen to this. He, speaking of Jesus, God the Son, and, and, and you need to know that Jesus is not a created being. He's, the, he's, he's part of the Godhead. He's, he's the eternal Son of God. God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No beginning, no end. In fact, Colossians 1 says that, that Jesus created all things. Therefore, He, God the Son, had to be made like His brothers in every respect. So God the Son became a man so that he might became a, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, in other words, to satisfy, to make payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So do you see, do you see we had a problem, transgression, sin that exists in all of us, and, and do you see the the price that's being paid is not just somebody who's really, you know, hoping the best for us, but God the Son becomes a man to stand in our place and pay the price for us. And what is the price that he pays? Well, let's flip to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Look at, look at what Hebrews 7, verse 26 says about, about this price that Jesus paid. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In other words, even though Jesus was a man, he was perfect. He was sinless, tempted in all ways, but yet without sin. Fully man, fully God, enduring all the temptations that we endure but yet without sin, think about that, that Jesus is sinless for all of his years on this earth. I mean, I can't even, I can't even get out of the bed in the morning without having something that I need to repent of. I can't even preach a sermon without thinking about stuff in the back of my mind that I need to repent of. Um, some of you that are from Crosspoint know that I love this dead Baptist preacher from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon once said, and I, I don't know, i got to talk to Chuck about this someday if I see him in heaven. He said that he, when he was preaching, he could at times count that he would have six or seven other thoughts going on in his mind that he would want to talk about that sometimes he would have to suppress because his mind was so brilliant. Well, I sort of identify with that, but I have like two or three things that are always going on in my mind that I need to repent of even as I'm preaching. Why is that person coughing? That was an important point. <laughs> Stop moving over there. I see you. And I'm, and I'm just like, where's that person? Oh, you're, wake up. You know, I'm just, I'm, and I'm like, this is always, like, I can't even get through a sermon without sinning. And Jesus endured over three decades in the flesh, resisting, that's, just take that in. That's stunning. As a man, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, because he had none. And then for the sins of the people, since, since 
He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So do you see what's going on? The Old Testament, if you're unfamiliar with it, is, is much of it is about how God's people could approach him because they have sinned, they've cut themselves off from him, he's holy and they are not. So how, this is the question of the Old Testament, really it's the question of the whole Bible, really it's the question of the whole universe. How can people like us approach their holy God. And in the Old Testament, it's full of sacrifices and laws that are a kind of temporary shadow that point to the Christ, Jesus. And all of these temporary shadows were kind of like temporary measures that helped people to see that ultimately there's nothing that they can do, there's no sacrifice they can bring that can finally and fully atone for their sin. And so the whole point of the Old Testament is to point forward to something outside of us, which is Christ who comes to us, and because he's not just a good man, but because he is the eternally holy son of God, he has enough holiness to satisfy and atone for all of the sins of all of the world. And he lays down his, his life. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus lays down his holiness, his perfection, his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Now, we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because it's been paid for. The wrath of God, the, the, the punishment for sins has been satisfied. Friends, that's what's going on here. Jesus is our mediator. So what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, it says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And why is that word mediator so important? Mediator is somebody that can represent two parties. Well, Jesus can represent God because he is God the Son. And he can represent us because he is a real man. And so he absorbs God's wrath for us. That's what, that's what it means that the price needs to be paid and it's nothing we can pay in and of ourselves. Now, if, you have, if, you're, if you're at this point just wondering, man, Okay, I get this, but, but why, why, why did all of this have to happen? And I think that leads us to, to, the, to the final thought here, is that there was a, a problem that needed to be solved. It's our sin. There's a price that needs to be paid. It's, it's Christ and his life and death. And ultimately, there's a person that needs to be satisfied. And what do we mean by this person? We're not talking about a, a mere human being. I'm talking about a divine person, God himself. Think about this ransom that needs to be paid. To, to whom did it need to be paid? And we might think sort of instinctively, well, it needs to be paid to the devil because he's sort of in control of this world in a, in a sense, and, and he needs to be paid off to let us go. In fact, there are verses in the Bible that says that we're, we're in bondage to sin and we're slaves to these things and, and there's this prince of the power of the air who's at work and the sons of disobedience. We read that. So in one sense we may think that, that the person that needs to be paid off is the devil himself but actually, actually it goes much deeper than that. The, the person that ultimately needs to be satisfied is the person of God, God himself. 
He's the one that needs to be appeased. Look, look at what Jesus says in the text that we read before verse 45 in Mark 10. In verse 38 of Mark 10 that we read, as these disciples are coming to him and they're saying, we want glory. Let, let me sit at your right hand and the other at your left. And Jesus He's kind of shaking his head in verse 38. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, I don't have time to show you thoroughly from the Old Testament, so I hope you'll just take my word from, for it. But I think what Jesus is clearly alluding to here is he's speaking about this cup that he's about to drink from. And he's speaking about this baptism in the sense, and think about the picture of baptism that you're going down underwater. And when Jesus says that, that's a clear reference to the wrath of God, the judgment of God against rebellious sinners in the Old Testament. In fact, oftentimes this, this idea of the cup of God's wrath would, would be an image in the Old Testament that God would pour out his wrath and that the cup of his wrath wasn't quite full, but when it's full, God's going to pour out his wrath on his enemies. And then we see even when God rescues his people from Egypt, in a sense, kind of the waters, the flood waters come upon the, the, the Egyptian army. And then we see even in the flood when, when Noah builds an ark and God judges the world with the flood. In a sense, the world is, is judged, is baptized in the flood waters of God's wrath. And so what Jesus is alluding to here is that when he goes to the cross, he, he's ultimately not satisfying some debt that we owe to the devil or to, to some sort of ambiguous idea of sin or fallenness or, or to ourselves in any way. But Jesus is going to the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. So who is being appeased? Who's being satisfied? The holiness of God. Friends, your greatest need is, is, not, is not merely to deal with sin or to deal with the devil or to deal with a less than optimal life. Your greatest need is that you will stand before a holy God one day and what will your plea be? And Jesus is saying here that he, he will bear the punishment for his people. He will drink the cup of God's wrath and he will drink it dry. There won't be a drop left because he alone can satisfy and atone for our sin. He alone can satisfy the holiness of God. That's what Jesus is saying there. That's why the words in Romans 8, 1 are so, are so sweet. It means that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And implicit in that statement is, is that those that are not in Christ Jesus, they are still condemned. And who's the one that's doing the condemning? Is, 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 is that it's God because of their sin. He is separating himself from them. But Jesus is saying, I will drink that wrath. I will take those floodwaters of God's judgment for you and remove it. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples and that's what it means that Jesus has become our ransom. But before we, before we move on with just a couple reflections and end this, let me, let me just see that, so let's just look here for a second. What, what did the person of God the Father do in response to the ransom of the Son? 
well, this, this is the good news of, of resurrection morning. He accepted it. He, he accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, and he raised Jesus from the grave. So Jesus has defeated death and sin. He, he, he brought Jesus back from the grave because Jesus didn't need to be punished. He vindicated Jesus and raised him up again. That's what, that's what the Bible says in the gospel account that Springer read for us earlier. That's what the apostles preached. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 6. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 6 and what it says about those that are in Christ. It says in Romans 6 verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In other words, Jesus took, took the floodwaters of God's judgment for us and we were in him. So what he did for us is credited to us in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So Jesus was raised because Jesus was innocent. Jesus was holy. Jesus didn't need to die, but he did die for us. And so he was raised by God the Father. And for those of us that are putting our hope in him, we too are raised with him. Now, we aren't just forgiven. We actually get, we receive the credit of Jesus' righteousness. So, so, Remember what we talked about, how our debt has caused a transgression. Something needs to be repaid. We have a debt, and Jesus pays our debt. But the gospel is even better than that. He doesn't just bring us back to zero. He gives us his righteousness. Now we can stand before God if we're trusting in Jesus, not just merely forgiven, but we actually receive all of the righteousness that Jesus has, has won. That's... That's what Jesus means here, to give his life as a ransom for many. Two brief thoughts on how we should react to this, how we should respond to this. Friends, this means that our greatest need has been met. That, that's the most important thing going on. That's the most important issue for every person in this room. How will you someday stand before a holy God? The issue's not, ultimately, I'm not saying these things are unimportant, but I am saying that they're all temporal. The issue is not whether you're going to get a promotion. The issue is not whether or not you're going to get that job. The issue is not whether you're going to be able to ladder up the real estate market and get that house that you really want. The issue is not whether or not you will eventually get married. The issue is not whether or not you will eventually get this or that in any sense because ultimately all of those things will fade away. None of those things I'm saying are unimportant, but what I am saying is that they're temporary and they pale in comparison to the greatest need that all of us have is that we will all stand before God someday. And if we see this, we see that there is a way that has been made a need has been met for those that will trust in him. Notice what he says, and this is so important. The last two words of verse 45, he says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Not for all, but for many. And who are those many? Those many are those who will turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in him. The many is a specific group of people who are not trusting in themselves, but they're trusting in him. 
So this is not a kind of blanket news that applies to you just because you're physically present at a church on Sunday morning. That's the lie of cultural Christianity that we think we're right with God because our daddy's a deacon or our grandma played the piano or we got a bulletin from somewhere. But it's only applicable, it only applies to those who are trusting in him, who put their hope in him. And friends, friends, if, if you have walked into this room and you become aware of the fact that you're not yet trusting in Jesus and you're even aware of that, friends, I think that is a, a boatload of evidence that God is giving you eyes to see. So, so what do you do now? You don't scurry off making a, a resolution list on things that you need to do because what can you do that can atone for your debt? Nothing. When you feel that swelling up in your heart that you realize that Christ is the only way, you've got a thousand other questions, so do I. But you realize that Christ is the only way. You don't run off into self-improvement. You finally let go and look to Christ. And you say, you know what? That crazy guy was screaming a lot. I, I, I don't know. I got a lot of questions. I grew up in a bad church situation. Or maybe I've never been in church before. Or maybe I got a thousand other things. Don't we just, we start, right now, right now is when you start stockpiling excuses. Oh, I don't know, man. I don't, you know what? Man, listen, I've been a Christian, I think, since 1989. I've been a pastor for some 20 years. I've been the pastor of this church. We started this church 13 years ago this month. I got lots of questions too. I mean, I'm barely, I'm, my nose is barely above the water of my questions. So don't, so, don't, so don't come to me talking about, oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, well, join the band of people who haven't quite figured it out yet. Because right, right now, there's a spiritual battle going on in your heart right now. You are programmed to come up with excuses to shoot holes in everything I'm saying. And what I'm saying is that crowd out the noise for once, and I'm just getting you to see, not to answer every apologetic philosophical question that has ever been raised, I'm getting you to see, I'm, I'm pleading with you to see that there is one great question for every person in the world. You will stand before your creator, God, what will your plea be? And if you have any sense that you realize you can't do it and that Christ is who he said he is, even if you're not completely sure of that, friends, that's faith. That's God planting something in you. What needs you do in that moment? What you need to do is not do anything but look away from yourself and look to him. Friends, that, that's, that's, that, that's, that's what the Bible calls for. And friends, I, I believe, let's just get behind the scenes for a moment, that, that God is giving you that. That's not something you bring to the table. God's actually giving that to you. That's why faith is called a gift. And the second thing, you may be thinking, well, man, man oh, Brad, I'm so glad. You're, maybe you're a Christian in here. And you're thinking, oh, I'm so glad Brad preached the gospel on Easter morning. This was really good for the person. I mean, come on, like, I, like, we don't do this every Sunday. I mean, come on, where you been? Wake up. <laughs> I mean, 
I'm sinning now. I got to like, remember those, those thoughts that go through my head. <laughs> okay. And you may be thinking, oh, well, isn't it neat that the gospel is preached so that unbelievers can believe it? No, friends, we need the gospel too. And what the gospel is, is not merely a set of facts by which you have to agree with once in time to secure your eternal destination, and then you go about living life in a kind of more, you know, helpful way. No, no, the gospel is the announcement of how guilty rebels can be made right with a holy God and be brought into a kingdom that is coming that will never fade away. And the point is this, that the gospel is the announcement that a new way of life has been established. And so now we are freed from our natural inclination because, friends, we are all like James and John. We come to Jesus, some of us even after we've been Christians for a long time, and we come to Jesus. Jesus, all right, I've been doing this thing for about a couple decades now. What are you going to do for me? Jesus, what are you going to do for me? This is my agenda. Here you go, Jesus. Stamp off on it. Do it for me. Friends, when we come to Jesus that way, he shakes his head and he says, you, you, don't, you don't get it, man. I, I've come so that y- you can actually upend your life from making your ambitions, your temporary wants, your greatest treasure, and I can turn it upside down so that now true joy is found in actually making him the greatest treasure of your life. And when you have the greatest treasure, when you have the pearl of great price, like he says in a parable, you're like that farmer who has found that pearl and he's willing to go sell everything he has and make it known that he has the pearl of great price. And that's the Christian life. Then we come to Jesus, not this is what I want you to do for me, but Jesus, how do you want me to, how do you want me to go? What was my life to be about? What, here's my stuff. Use it all. Where can I go for you? What can I do for you, Jesus? That's the effect that the gospel should have on all of us, members of Crosspoint, in our pretty dresses and our spring-colored bow ties. And our smiles and our latent selfishness that still needs to die. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For you, dear friend, if you will turn from trusting in yourself, put your hope in Jesus. For you, dear Christian, to unclench your fists from yourself and give yourself away for the king who is risen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, 
I pray that you would use your glorious word, your inspired word, these words that we've read from Mark chapter 10 about the greatest truth in the universe, and you would add my feeble words to them in your kindness, and that you would do your will with them. Lord, I pray that if there's any unbelievers in this room that came in not knowing you, that right now you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe these, these truths, ears to hear this, and that they would turn from trusting in their own selves, that they would take all of their questions and doubts, that they would bring them to you, and that they would simply say, Jesus, I believe you. I need you. I will stand before God someday, and my only hope is that another would take my place. I, I pray that that would be something that you work in in every person's heart in this room that came in not believing. I, I plead with you to do that. That's, that's their only hope. It's their only hope. If, if they've been even mildly inspired by, by this gathering and they, they leave this room determined to do better, Lord, they may get by for a few months, but they will fail. So I, I, I plead that you would humble them and let them see that their only hope is Christ. And I pray that that person, if they're in this room, would, would not leave this building today without talking to somebody that they know to be a Christian and telling them that this is going on in their heart and mind and, and ask for help on, on considering these matters more fully. And for those of us that are believers, Lord, we, I confess I'm like, I'm like James and John. I just want you to do stuff for me. I want you to be my servant is, is my default position. And I repent of that. And for my brothers and sisters who find themselves in the same place, I, I re we corporately repent and we, we ask that you would free us from ourselves, from the, from the despair of making ourselves the center of the universe and that you would you would actually grant us and reawaken our souls to the joy of making you the center of our lives so that we can give ourselves away. And when we do that, we're not worried about what other people have in compared, comparison to us because if we have Christ, we have it all. So, so, so who cares if, if my brother or sister has more? Praise God, because then they can give away more set us on this trajectory for joy. Refresh us in this new life. I pray that you do all of these things for the glory of your name and for the, for the good of your people, for the, for the salvation of any in this room who did not know Jesus coming and do these things, I pray God humbly. In Jesus' name, amen.